Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buecher. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buecher. Rick Buecher. This is On the Ball on the United Recast Network, and I am Rick Buecher. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me by ordering the memoir of Brian Grant and his battle with young onset Parkinson's called Rebound. If you know someone with Parkinson's or you know nothing about Parkinson's, you will want to read Brian's story. Order your copy on Amazon or visit your favorite brick-and-mortar bookstore to grab one. Are you a Kindle reader? Audiobook listener? We've got those versions as well. Support Brian's foundation, which supports those afflicted with Parkinson's, and pick up your copy today. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram, at Rick Buecher, from a lot of places. But there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA. And that is here. It's been a rough few weeks for the analytics crowd. With the 2021 NBA Finals featuring an array of outstanding mid-range shooters, Devin Booker, Chris Paul, Chris Middleton... Those who are angry over the vilification of shots taken anywhere from 5 to 20 feet by the data nerds and their Texas instruments and algebraic equations have been crowing loud and long about the shot, not just still being useful, but indispensable for any team looking to win a title. To which I say, not so fast. No one's ever said, Live by the mid-range, die by the mid-range. But that's essentially what happened to the Suns in the finals. Look, no one dislikes the bastardization of the game into an efficiency quotient more than me. It's not that I don't appreciate long-range shooting, or that there isn't an art to creating good looks from beyond the arc, or that I'm not amazed and entertained by Steph Curry, Damian Lillard, and Trey Young knocking down threes from the midcourt logo. The guts that it takes to launch that shot, much less consistently hit it, still boggles my mind. I've been on plenty of NBA courts. I've had the pleasure of playing pickup on a few of them. And there's something about being surrounded by all those seats and the stage lighting and the massive jumbotron overhead that just makes the rim look like a mile away from that distance. Teams used to end practices by seeing who could hit the first half-court shot, 
And the times I witnessed that ritual, there were plenty of times a shot wasn't hit until they'd gone through the roster a couple of times. I haven't seen that game played lately, and maybe it's because players today would make such quick work of it, there isn't a whole lot of suspense. It's a slightly different shot than the classic, classic jumper, by the way, at least the way it's being taken now. If you watch Steph or Trey or any of the regular practitioners of the shot, they start their motion with the ball much lower and finish with a lower release point in order to pack as much power as they can into the shot and still maintain a consistent form. Back when teams had their midcourt shot contests, very few players took anything resembling a jump shot. More often than not, they looked like two-handed chess passes, simply fired on a higher trajectory, allowing the shooters to involve both thumbs in the shot and yet still shoot it straight. The problem I have with the emphasis on getting up as many threes as possible, and I know of teams that literally go into the game with the express purpose of reaching a certain quota of three-point shots, sometimes as many as 50, is that it takes a lot of the art and creativity out of the game. There is nothing more captivating for me than watching a point guard snake his way into the lane with the ball and waiting to see what kind of dazzling pass he's going to make to create an easy bucket for a teammate out of thin air. Now, it's drive into the paint off a pick and roll and either lob the ball to the rim or whip it back out to the perimeter for a three. Or, of course, pull up for a mid-range jumper, if you have one. What turned the series for the Bucks is that they committed to making the Suns' top three offensive threats, Chris Paul, Devin Booker, and DeAndre Ayton, all mid-range shooters. The effect was most felt by Ayton, understandably, because he's the least natural of those three as mid-range shooters. With Drew Holiday on Chris Paul, Paul had a harder time turning the corner and being a threat to get to the rim. In game one, he had no problem getting past P.J. Tucker, so much so that a big had to rotate over to stop him from scoring on a layup. As soon as the big left Aiton, Paul floated a lob for Aiton to finish. Now, with a big staying home on Aiton, that took away those lobs and putbacks on misses. To still keep Aiton involved, the Suns had no choice but to get him the ball in the middle of the paint, the pinch post or the mid post. It's also, with Chris Paul being bottled up, the playmaking went to Devin Booker. And Devin Booker wasn't looking to make plays off the dribble, where it was an option for him to score or to get the ball to Aiton. It was either he was going to attack or he was going to stand on the perimeter and dump the ball into Aiton. And in the cases, in, in, in that case, Aiton was getting the ball somewhere in the mid-range. Now, Aiton has a decent mid-range shot, but it's not as nearly as devastating as when he catches the ball within three feet of the rim. His touch, his ability to use either hand and finish in a variety of ways from a variety of angles is exquisite, as good as any young big man's in the game. He absolutely tortured 
the Suns' opponents in their first three series with his finishes around the rim, shooting an insane 79% against the Lakers, 61% against the Nuggets, and 69% against the Clippers. He did the same to the Bucks in Game 1 of the Finals. Ayton making 8 of his 10 shots from the floor to go with 6 of 6 free throws. It doesn't get much more efficient than that. But shutting down the lobs from Paul, starting in Game 2, had a profound effect. In Game 1, only 3 of his shots came from outside the restricted zone, and they accounted for his only two misses. In game two, all but one of his shots were at the rim, but with his man now not leaving him, nearly all of them were contested, nearly half on putback attempts rather than clean looks off of a pass. And Aiton went four for ten. It just got progressively worse from there. Aiton had a noteworthy scoring performance in game three, but it was only because he was effective from mid-range. Of his 11 shots, seven were from mid-range, and he made five of them. But the Bucs were playing the law of averages. Aiton shooting a high percentage from mid-range was going to be infinitely harder than shots at the rim. And it also meant the Suns weren't really creating multiple threats on any one possession, which creates more time and space for the Mikael Bridges and the Jay Crowders and whoever winds up shooting. Instead, basically reduced the Suns to taking turns shooting mid-range shots. Now, it's a testament to their ability to make those shots that the games were still relatively close. But it wasn't a winning formula. All those mid-range shots couldn't put the Bucks in foul trouble or manufacture points from the free throw line. By game four, the Bucks' strategy had turned him from DeAndre Eaton, the nickname he picked up in the series against the Lakers, to DeAndre Aiken, a nickname I gave him just now. I'm sure that was a big reason why Monty Williams and Chris Paul were seen at various times subsequently in the series giving him a pep talk, trying to get him energized. It didn't work in game four. He had all of two shots at the rim and seven mid-range attempts and he missed six of them. Now Aiton and the Suns got a brief reprieve in game five when Drew Holiday picked up two fouls less than six minutes into the game forcing him to sit and putting Jeff Teague on Paul and if you ever had any question about the impact of Drew Holiday on Chris Paul and therefore on DeAndre Ayton this is where you learned because suddenly with Holiday on the bench and Teague taking his place, the Aiton CP3 show was back in business. Paul had four assists with no turnovers in the first quarter. Aiton was either finishing shots or getting fouled for free throws. But the Bucks shut the water off in the fourth quarter. Aiton had three shots, all misses, only a putback tip in that was uncontested and two free throws were his only contribution scoring. Game six was then the culmination of Milwaukee's strategy coming to bear on DeAndre. Of his 11 shots, seven were mid-rangers, and he missed all of them. All of which was also having a profound effect on Chris Paul's playmaking statistics. 
His balanced scoring is what allowed him to get Aiton and everyone else involved. In Game 1, his best of the series, 8 of his shots were either 3s or layups, and he made 5 of them. 5 of 8. Game 3, 6 of his shots were not from the mid-range, and he only made 2. Paul's thinking was fairly understandable. I have to score for us to have a chance to win, but the only place I can consistently make a shot is from the mid-range, at least with Holiday on me. So I guess that's where I've got to go. By game six, he was practically living there, taking 15 of his 19 shots from somewhere between 12 and 18 feet. No matter how much you believe in the mid-range shot, that is not going to deliver a positive result. Now, to his credit, Chris Paul made eight of them, but he only got to the line for four free throws, and one was a technical foul on Bobby Portis that he missed. Ayton had four baskets on 12 shots. Paul had a total of five assists. You should understand by now how those lowly numbers are a product of each other. This may be the subject of a deeper dive down the line, but I was also fascinated by how the Bucks shifted their focus when it came to the three-point shot as the playoffs moved along. They weren't just shutting down Aiton at the rim. They were also doing a much, much better job of running the Suns off the three-point line. And they did that gradually, consistently throughout the playoffs. They also took fewer threes, relied on it less. The shot became less and less a staple for the Bucks, and they did an infinitely better job of defending it. During the regular season, they were 8th in attempts and 5th in percentage. Not bad, right? Except they were awful in defending it. So they were usually losing the battle from long range, with opponents getting up 39 threes a game and shooting a crisp 38%. Only the Timberwolves were worse during the regular season at defending threes. But Milwaukee, lo and behold, corrected all that in the postseason. They averaged a whopping 40 threes a game against the Heat in the first round. But by the time they faced the Suns, they had shaved off nearly 10 attempts per game, while only making two less. Translation? They were taking fewer threes, but they were taking more high-quality ones. At the other end, they just did a better job of closing out, running shooters off the three-point line, and then helping on the drives. The Suns shot 38% from three in the finals overall, the highest percentage allowed by the Bucks. But that's a little deceiving because they did all of their damage in two games one of which they won, and one they lost. In Game 2, they made 20 of 43s. And in Game 5, they shot an out-of-this-world 68%, making 13 of 19. Half of their 66 made threes in the series came in those two games. In the other four, they shot 25%. What does it mean that the Bucks were able to win the title despite being the 14th worst three-point shooting team among the 16 in the playoffs? 
with only the Lakers and the Wizards worse? Or that the top six best three-point shooting teams, the Jazz, Blazers, 76ers, Mavericks, Nuggets, and Nets, didn't make it past the second round? It's something I'll have to ask my NBA scouts and assistant coaches, since they're generally the ones who pay the most attention to trends or are most cognizant of them because they do all the opposing scouting reports. I suspect, at least part of it, is that the referees allowed a little more physicality, maybe even a lot more, which made it more difficult to get free for three-point shots and resulted in fewer guys marching to the line to shoot three free throws. But the result, much closer, more entertaining games, Lend support to something Raptors coach Nick Nurse said to me in a podcast months ago when we discussed solutions to the rash of threes being shot and the quality of the game deteriorating as a result. I suggested the extreme solution of doing away with a three-point line. Nurse suggested allowing a little more physicality would be enough to do the trick. Based on the finals... I'd have to say he was right. I can only hope the league took notice and operates in the future accordingly. All right, that does it for this episode of On the Ball on the United WeCast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. In the next episode, I'm going to take a look at the Milwaukee Bucks and the idea that they were not a super team or that they were a extreme departure from the type of championship teams that we've seen built in recent years. I'm not so sure about that. Maybe taking a closer look exactly what went into the Bucks and the roster that they have. They show more similarities than differences, at least to the teams that have won championships in the last eight, nine years. All of that in the next podcast. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.